We are uh, going to be in the book of Habakkuk tonight, Habakkuk. Uh, so it's right after the book of Nahum that we were at last time. Um, so, you know, that helps you. Uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai. So if you hit the New Testament, you've gone too far. Hang a left. Um, so probably the easiest thing to do. So on... Um, uh, as far as what we're, we're going to be doing for the next few weeks as we go through the minor prophets, you know, it, it's kind of hard to know how to, how to approach the minor prophets. In the past, what we've been doing on Wednesday nights is sort of me kind of saying, okay, know the, understand this about whatever book it's, we're in or whatever passage we're in. Understand this, understand this. When it comes to the minor prophets, I have found in the church, the minor prophets are one of those categories of scripture that feel distant to everyone, that when they read them, it's almost like we don't know what to do with them. And if you have that, that sort of uh, moment on your couch where you turn, you open your, your reading list and it's like you got a minor prophet or maybe you're going through the minor prophets a lot, you're kind of like, oh man, they all kind of sound the same. They all, and even if I can understand them, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't know how that applies to me. And so we're gonna, we're tr I'm trying something a little bit different when it comes to the Minor Prophets, and that is, especially when it's a book that I think we can get through in one night, we can read through, we're going to read every verse of it. But I want you to see, too, in that, that just, uh, just that much of background information can totally change the way you read the book itself, and you can grasp what's being said there. What you'll find is, that the minor prophets are poets. And that's part of what makes it really hard, is they communicate in this language that's sort of, uh, how, I guess today we would call it flowery. And uh, it's this language that's sort of, you know, flowery, there's lots of metaphors, there's lots of, it's poetic language. And you have to be good at sort of distilling that down to what is he saying and how does that apply to the situation he's in. Well, when you understand the context that they're in, it helps to pull that language down and apply it exactly where they are. The other part of this is I want us to be able to, as we think about the minor prophets, to, to really understand how we go about applying the minor prophets, how we go about interpreting them. Because if you, if you, short, if you take shortcuts in this process, I promise you, if you we're going to see an example of it tonight, okay? If you take shortcuts in the process of interpreting the minor prophets and you go from what they said straight to me or straight to me on my couch as I'm reading it, you're going to invariably get it wrong, all right? But if you, if you take the right steps through it and understand what's happening, I, I promise you the minor prophets will have something to say to every single one of us, and they'll be edifying. Third, when it comes to the minor prophets, if you can't learn to read them, or if you don't learn to read them, Revelation will eh, forget it, all right? You'll never get it. John is writing Revelation not to be secretive. He's writing Revelation. It's called Revelation. It's called uh, the Apocalypse, all right? Which means the revealed thing, all right? It's to be revealed. It's open. It's open. In spite of what you may feel about it, that he's hiding everything, he's not. He's putting it out there in the open. But he talks so much like a minor prophet that sometimes it goes right over our head. 
So this study actually benefits greatly our understanding of the New Testament itself, okay? So for my money, if, if I'm taking somebody through how to read the Bible, I mean, yeah, you can make your argument for the Gospels, amen, do it, right? Uh, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do it, all right? Paul, Romans, yes, do it, amen. There's not a book you couldn't read, all right? But for my money, the minor prophets is where you take someone from, okay, I can read the Bible, to, okay, I really understand the Bible. Because you can really grasp the language and what is happening in the Bible as a whole. All right, have I sold it good enough? That's my best pitch, all right, for, for reading the Bible. All right, uh, I'm going to keep this under, under the review. I'm going to probably change that title up there from review to just timeline. But I, I'm going to keep that timeline up there because there may be times where we come back to it. Probably won't tonight, but there's, there's times where we come back to that. Also on the last page, um, just remember back here at the back, I'm putting in as we go the, uh, the, the prophets and where they fall and who they're to. And remember, a lot of the dates, not all of them, but a lot of the dates are approximations. They're close guesses. Now, you have some people like Isaiah. He tells us right out who was king whenever he, was, whenever he prophesied. So you got a good line. He went through a bunch of kings, all right? And, and the ones that have lines drawn straight from them, they, they were there for a lot of kings, okay? But then you get to like Nahum, Habakkuk, uh, uh, Obadiah, Joel. Those are guesses as to when they, like, this is pr pretty close. It's pro they're probably in this era somewhere, all right? So just know that if they've got a star. It's not exact dates, but it's, it's got to be something like that. Okay, so with that being said, we talked about Nahum last week. And there we understood Nahum, it's, there's not a lot we know about Nahum. He's not, he doesn't appear anywhere else in the Old Testament. We don't know anything really much about him. We get a, a pretty good idea of when he prophesied, but that's about it, all right? Well, Habakkuk is maybe a little worse. We probably know a little bit less about Habakkuk. In fact, well, we'll get into that in a minute. Um, we do know that he is a prophet and his concern is of the southern kingdom of Judah. And we know that Judah is approaching her exile into Babylon. So that is a, about as much as we've got. So we, we do know some of the circumstances that surrounded the preacher, just because of what we read in the book itself. But, but we don't know much, all right? What we do know is that there was in Judah at the time that Habakkuk tells us that injustice was all over the country, all right? Now, just not that long ago, we were going through the Old Testament, and we were going through Samuel and Kings, First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings on Wednesday night, and we went through nearly chapter by chapter, all right? Sometimes we did two chapters or three at once, but mostly it was chapter by chapter we went through it. And you'll remember, there wasn't a whole lot of great kings, right? There, there, I mean, most of them were not great. And so for there to be injustice in Judah is like saying water's wet, right? I mean, that's, you know, it's like, well, duh. I mean, that was kind of always the case, right? Yes, it was. So what happens, though, is we know that there was injustice there. But it, it only becomes obvious that Judah is the culprit because Judah's not even mentioned in the book. 
So the only reason that we know that he's a prophet to the south or to Judah is because he actually mentions the Chaldeans in one part, in verse 6 of chapter 1. He mentions the Chaldeans, which is also the Babylonians. Chaldea is the area, Babylon is the major city, there you go. So Chaldeans, Babylonians, they're the same group, all right? So he mentions the Chaldeans, or the Babylonians, and the prophecy mainly concerns the Babylonians coming in to invade, and that they're going to come in and take off whomever he's prophesying to into exile. Well, we happen to know that the southern kingdom was taken off into exile by Judah, so we deduce then that Habakkuk was a prophet in Judah. Does that make sense? tracking with the train of thought. It's not that hard to put together. But what that means then is we can make some guesses as to maybe some approximate time that he's in. He can't be any earlier than 626. All right? Can't be any earlier than 626. Remember in BC days they count backwards. All right? So can't be any earlier than 626. But then in 626 Josiah was on the throne and Josiah's reign was pretty good, and it was kind of that one rare exemption in Judah's history, few rare exemptions in Judah's history, where they're actually doing pretty, pretty well under Josiah with some reforms and things. Josiah dies in 609, and the, the king that, that was then handed over to is actually a king for a year, and then the next king after that was wicked as the day is long, all right? So it's a, there's a really good chance that Habakkuk is probably somewhere in that range right after Josiah dies, like 609, 608, up to 605, because in 605, Babylon comes in, all right? So it would have to be probably in that window. Could be a little bit before, but uh, it's, it's, that's the best guess, all right? Does that make sense, how you kind of piece that together? All right, relatively easy. Okay, so far, so good. Okay, good. Um, now, a couple of distinctive features about Habakkuk that, that few other prophets share is this dialogue that happens between the prophet and the Lord. So there's a dialogue going back where the prophet is speaking straight to God. God's, it's like they're writing letters back and forth to each other, I mean, essentially. And it, it's a little bit different in Habakkuk than it is anywhere else. You'll see it occasionally, like uh, Jonah is another one that kind of has that that uh, sort of dialogue between him and God, you know, during the, the course of the book. Uh, but Habakkuk is, just takes a little bit different tone, especially in the kind of person Habakkuk seemed to be. And then at the very end, the last chapter, is this psalm. It's just, it's just a psalm that's tacked on to the end. It's chapter 3. And, and, and you'll even notice when we get there, he addresses the psalm just like the psalms. Just like David does, you know, tells what hymn, what, what tune the song is going to be played to, and he writes it to the choir master, and you know, all that kind of thing. He, he, so he, he's clearly, or, or he may be at least, some sort of song leader in Israel. Maybe, right? That, we could probably say, maybe he might be that, because how, how many people write psalms, right? Uh, typically, they're song leaders. Even David was a, was a, a hymn writer and a, a song leader. So, questions on that? Any questions that come up as far as that goes? I know it's scant, but if you believe it or not, that context, knowing he's in Judah, knowing Babylon's on the horizon, Babylon's coming in, and they're going to invade, and he knows now that Babylon's going to invade, that, and he, he, or he learns that in the, in the prophecy, that information can help you unpack Habakkuk uh, very easily, I think. 
Any questions on that before we go to the next part? Good? All right. Okay. Easier than I thought it would be. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> not that I thought you wouldn't get it. Uh, I knew you would. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through section by section, and we're going to figure out what Habakkuk is saying, how he's saying it, what is, is being communicated there before we get to the end uh, where we come to interpret it, okay? So beginning in verse 2. So, so verse 1 is, is really very, very simple, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. Well, okay, so we're going to start in verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear, or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and contention arise. So the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. All right, that's the first, just two verses two to four. What is Habakkuk's issue? What is he talking about here? This is where you, you're going to talk a little bit, okay? So, what was what, Habakkuk? Yeah. He says, he says, how long shall I cry for help and you will not... Hear or cry violence, and you will not save. God, you're not doing anything. All right? Not doing anything about... We'll say again? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what is God not doing something about? Yeah, we see here. Uh, justice never goes forth. That's God. The law is paralyzed. We live in a nation of lawlessness, even though we're supposed to be people of the law. The wicked surround the righteous. Justice goes forth perverted. Um, destruction and violence of its strife and contention arise. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? So you see what kind of situation is happening in the country? And and Habakkuk, I know y'all are drawing parallels to today. I know, I know in your head, you're like, I, I'm, <laughs> I heard, all right, stop it. All right, stop it, okay? Uh, all right, just stop it. All right, we're not there yet, okay? I can just see the look in your eye. I just know. I've been with you for five and a half years now, I know. Um, so, so his problem is that not only is there wickedness in the nation, but that when he sees it, God doesn't do anything about it. So here's the question. Does God govern the universe in such a way that injustice and perversion is always punished? Well, Job's friends certainly thought so, right? Jo Job's friends certainly thought so. When Job was hurting... The friends came to Job and they said, no, you must have done something because the only reason God would be punishing you like this is if you had done something, you dirty, rotten scoundrels. So why don't you just go ahead and own up to it? All right? And, <laughs> and the whole book, Job maintains his innocence, right? What we learn in that book is that God doesn't govern the universe that way. That sometimes the wicked go on unpunished. And sometimes the just suffer injustice that looks like punishment, and it's not. But here is Habakkuk going, look at this. 
You can tell just by the fact that he says, the law is paralyzed. All right, again, y'all going to be drawing some parallels, I know. The law is paralyzed indicates that the people in power are the most perverted ones, right? Because they would be the ones to enforce the law. And I think he means they're the law of God, the first five books of the, you know, the, the law of Moses. Um, but the ones that would be there to enforce would be the priests and the, the high priests and things like that. And, and you know, they're, they're not there. Just, so then what happens? Justice never goes forth. The ones that would enact on it, they don't. So Habakkuk, you might say, is, is complaining to the Lord. And his complaint uh, is that the Lord remains silent. That's the big complaint. He's uttering a complaint. He'll even tell you that it is a complaint. We're not misreading this. He's going to say the word complaint. So he's going to tell you that it is a complaint. But most prophetic books, you know, will begin with this calling of the prophet. And God called the man under the tree and he went and spoke to so-and-so and I'll put my words in your mouth and all that kind of stuff. That's not Habakkuk. Habakkuk begins with a petition from a prophet to God. Why? It's a complaint. Why are you just sitting there? I can tell you who the people are. Do you need their names? He's the hall monitor, and he's looking around and going, there's all this, do you not care? You're supposed to be the principal around here, and you don't seem to be doing anything about these hellions running around the hallways. So he observes the iniquity and injustice in the land of Judah, and yet it seems as though the Lord remains completely silent. So then we get uh, some verses here, in verse, starting in verse 5. Uh, this is now a transition. And Job... Uh, Job. Habakkuk has made his complaint, and now the Lord is going to answer him. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Look at that. They're bitter, they're hasty, they seize dwellings not their own, they steal. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. What's that meant to say? Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. did what was right in his own, in own eyes, like judges, like the book of judges. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah. He did what was right in his own eyes. Yeah, their, their justice is what is right in their own eyes. All right? Is that justice? That's injustice. We would call that injustice. God is saying their version of justice goes forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They fly like an eagle. Swift about remember that word, those words. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like, in other words, they don't retreat. They gather captives like sand. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Vicious and nasty. They, then they sweep by like the wind and go on uh, Guilty men, look at that, guilty men whose own might is their God. 
That sounds like a comforting bunch of people, doesn't it? So pay attention. You see the language that he's using here for this for the Chaldeans, Babylon. Good, bad. They're ugly. All right. You have to understand, though, his description is actually the fulfillment of a prophecy. Okay? Deuteronomy 28, 49 to 50. This is Moses writing this. The Lord will bring a... This is when the covenant curse... When he's going through the covenant curses, if they disobey. The Lord will bring a nation against you from far away, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle. What did he say about Babylon? And he said right here, fly like an eagle, swift to Where did he get that language? A nation whose language you do not understand. 50, uh, verse 50, a hard-faced nation. Even, that's an even language borrowed. Uh, who shall not respect the old or show mercy to the young. Who's he describing there? Sounds like Moses is describing Babylon, right? So the Lord responds to Habakkuk by saying, not do anything. Silent? No, 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 no. He's, he assures him he's not silent. He's going to judge Judah for her iniquities. In fact, he is raising up the Babylonians as the oppressor, a particularly vicious nation. Not do anything. No, 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 no. The guilty will always be punished, he says. Now, how do you think Habakkuk's going to feel about that? Comforted? Do you think maybe Habakkuk had in mind, I don't know, a swift lightning bolt would have done the trick, right? <laughs> I mean, you know, like, just, I could point them out. I <laughs> identify, I could, I could give you the ones, and, and so... Habakkuk's now going to respond to this. And here's what he's going to say. Listen to what he's going to say. So far, so far, the book of Habakkuk seems pretty smooth, doesn't it? It's not really that hard to understand, is it? As long as you know the context, you get what he's saying. All right. Verse 12 of Habakkuk 1. Habakkuk's responding. Are, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. That, that seems like it should have a dot, dot, dot and a question mark after it, <laughs> right? O oh Lord, you have ordained them as judgment, and you, O oh rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? What's he saying? No, he's saying, the Babylonians? Did I hear you right? The Babylonians? Wait, you're of purer eyes than to see evil. You cannot look at wrong. Well, then why do you first of all look idly at traitors and then and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? I thought Israel was bad, but the Chaldeans are worse. Are you telling me seriously that you're going to punish us? Granted, we're wicked, 
with a nation more wicked than we are? But you're holy. You're of pure eyes. You can't look upon wickedness like that. God, you're too dainty to have to deal with the affairs of men that way, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, he said God's no respecter of persons. Yeah, so, so it's, it's this situation that he's painting where he's like, God, you got to do something. Look at this. And God's like, I am doing something. I'm bringing the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans? You can't do that. <laughs> it's like Habakkuk's wanting him to run it by him first. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them with his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. So he's describing the Babylonians, right? Um, uh, or mankind in general. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offering to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his, foot is, his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? What's Habakkuk's problem now? Habakkuk's problem shifted now from Judah to say, well, what are you, you going to do about the Babylon? This seems to be a problem, God, that keeps perpetuating itself, right? You judge a wicked nation with a nation more wicked than he. Well, what are you going to do about them? Are, are they just going to go on perpetuating evil forever? Presumably the answer is no. Well, where's the justice for them now? Now I'm really concerned about Babylon. All right? <laughs> Listen to what he says here in verse 1 of, of chapter 2. I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what, an, what, I, what, will, what I will answer concerning my complaint. See, he forms it as a complaint. I've really got a complaint about the justice of God and how this whole thing works. First of all, you're not punishing the iniquity. Then you tell me you are about to punish the iniquity with more iniquity. When we say God draws straight licks with crooked sticks, that's all he's got is a bunch of crooked sticks, but he always hits straight licks, all right? Habakkuk is perplexed by the Lord's chosen method of, punishment, of punishing Israel, voicing a two-pronged complaint. First, Babylon's unrighteousness is worse than Israel's. Second, Although Israel deserves her punishment, should Babylon conquer with impunity? Should they not also be punishment, punished? Even though we, yes, we, and when I say Israel, I mean Judah, obviously, the people of God. Um, do, do we just, not, are we just not punished then? Are we just not punishing them? So the Lord is going to respond again in chapter 2 to Habakkuk. And the Lord answered me. Pay attention to this, okay? This is going to be really important. So if you hadn't paid attention up to now, do it now. Yeah. <laughs> Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. What is, what he, he's setting up what he's about to say. And what does that mean so he may run who reads it? What does that mean? What is it? I don't think so. I, I mean, maybe, but I, I, don't, I think it's so that it strikes terror in his heart. What I'm about to tell you is fierce. I want you to write every word of it so that when you, whoever reads it will run. For still the... Pay really close attention to this, okay? It's going to come up later on, okay? For still the vision awaits its appointed time. 
It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. He's talking about Babylon here. It is not upright within him. But the righteous shall live by faith. Have you seen this before? You have seen this before. Hmm. Well, this may come up later on. The righteous shall live by faith. In fact, I'm going to just give that a little blue mark here, okay? So you just remember, all right? The righteous shall live by faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Again, talking about Babylon. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him? So, so he set up Babylon, right? As I know how wicked they are. Believe me, I know exactly how wicked they are. Here's what's going to happen to them so, the, so that when the Babylonians read this prophecy, they will run in terror. Shall not these, who are these? Shall not all these, who are all these? All nations and collects as his own all peoples. These nations, these peoples, shall not they, all these, take up their taunt against him, that is Babylon, all right, with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. What is, what is the Lord saying is going to happen? What is he saying is going to happen here? What? It's not going to last. And what's going to happen to Babylon? Yeah, they're going to go down. And, wh and what's going to happen when they go down? All the nations around them that they've collected and they've conquered and all that, they're going to turn to Babylon and go, Oh, well, funny to see you around here down at the bottom. All right. I thought maybe. Uh-huh. Yeah. What do you think now? Not so mighty, are you? Okay. Um, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those who will, make, who, who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. The fortunes have been reversed. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. So it's going to be a reversal for Babylon. For the blood of man and, violent, and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house and to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam of the woodwork respond. They've laid waste to all these walls and castles and, and houses and things like this, and even the wood is going to cry out against them, right? Um, sounds pretty awful, but it keeps going. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What's he saying now? What's going to happen? Verse 14. What's he saying is going to happen here? 
yeah, why are they being judged? They're being judged for that stuff they did, and then what is going to be the outcome of their judgment? The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. How could Babylon possibly fall? God. Babylon couldn't fall like that. If God's your enemy, he can. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk. So it's picturing poetic imagery, right? Babylon is a person. They're sitting next to their neighbor in their house, and they're like, here, have another drink. Here, keep drinking, keep drinking, keep drinking. Fill it up to the brim. Keep drinking, keep drinking, keep drinking, so that he embarrasses his neighbor. You pour out wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. So now God's going to make you drink until you show your nakedness. It's quite a graphic image, isn't it? The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around. The cup in the Lord's right hand basically is what we're going to see in Jesus actually drink. Okay, It's uh, essentially the cup of the fury of his wrath. We see this appear all the time, but just know that when the Lord has a cup in his hand, it's not high C or juicy juice. Okay? Um, uh, will come around you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beast that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. It keeps going just a little bit more. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? That's a great line. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it? Your gods are not going to save you. A metal image, a teacher of lies. For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, Arise! Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord in his holy temple, but the, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. John actually quotes this, and it will not show up in any of your cross references, I guarantee you. John does this in Revelation 8 1. He says, The Lord is in his temple, and all the earth is silent before him or there's silence on the earth for a while. He's referencing this in Habakkuk, but it's not going to show up in any of your cross-references. It's not a quote. Got to know it, right? You got to read Habakkuk, and that's how you see it. You go, oh, that, John's just pulling from Habakkuk. There. He's just saying what's, what Habakkuk is. Yeah, he's doing that a lot. Okay, so you get this image over the course of all, this, all of chapter 2, as the Lord responds to Habakkuk, he puts an end to Habakkuk's fears of Babylon's impunity by assuring him that just as Babylon has sought the utter destruction of the nations, so also will Babylon face destruction. Their time of judgment is set, and God will not delay. Now what does he say here in chapter 3? Set and delay are those two blanks. So this is how the last bit goes. This is a psalm. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to, hey, look at that, there's the tune. Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work, O Lord, I do I fear. In the midst of the years, uh, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. What is he pleading for? 
Remember, don't kill us all. Uh, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. He's singing praise about what's going to happen in the future when God's glory covers the earth like God just said. He said that's going to happen, okay? His brightness was like, like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him was, went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. God the judge is coming in. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains. Look at the imagery that he's using. What's happening here as he enacts his, ju his judgment? How is the earth responding? It's shaking. The nations themselves are shaking. Like The crust of the earth is shaking. The eternal mountains are scattered. The mountains are going everywhere. The everlasting hills sank low. His, his were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Oh, the earth is feeling his judgment. Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. Selah. Is God really doing this? Is God really firing arrows? No. It's poetic language. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. What is he saying about the sun and the moon? Yeah, God's judgment was so bright and so obvious that the moon and the sun pale by comparison, okay? Now, that sun and moon language is going to come back later on in Matthew, in Revelation, several times. So, just know what kind of language is being here. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out from, uh, for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the, the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. Selah. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses. He doesn't have anything against the sea, but it's just a picture of him judging the earth. The surging of mighty waters. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day. I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines... The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no, no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. So you understand, that, that little end there, that little tale, conclusion of that psalm, is quoted a lot. People quote it a lot. 
what they don't understand when they quote it is that Habakkuk means that to be a terrible thing. It's in the context of a terrible thing that Habakkuk is saying, in the midst of chaos raining down around me, I know the Lord will shelter me and keep me. I may die in the midst of all this. I may get killed by Babylon. I may get swept up in, in all that the Lord brings in destruction to Babylon. But I trust that the Lord has something better for me. Okay? So I know that. But it's in the midst of utter chaos. Now, a lot of people say that as, as like they're going to a job interview and God's going to give them the job because he makes my feet like the deer and tread in high places. No, 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 no. That's not what he's saying. That's in the midst of a culture that is thrown into evil and that are being judged. I know that the Lord will save me. I know that. Okay. So, satisfied, Habakkuk composes a song of celebration, the awesome person of the Lord and his righteous judgment. He has always been faithful in judgment against his foes and has brought his redeemed people victory and salvation. In light of the past, then Judah can take confidence in what Yahweh would do for his people as they wait for the coming of the Babylonian host. It's not a comforting book. He's looking across the horizon and he doesn't feel comforted in the sense that he knows Babylon is coming. It's going to be death. At the same time, his comfort lies in the Lord who's bringing the judgment. I know if God's behind this, I'm going to be okay. All right? I know I can endure it if God's going to be behind it. If God's behind it. So now when you draw those lines of cultural connection that you were tempted to do early on in the book, now then, what is it saying to you who is drawing that cultural connection? Well, then we should be as resolved as Habakkuk is to go, if the Lord's going to bring judgment on this place, then let him bring judgment. You know, if he's going to raise up an even more wicked nation to come in and conquer this one that I'm in because of its wickedness, then so be it. I'm on God's team on this, regardless of what he does, and regardless of how long he tarries. Right? So it becomes less... Maybe, maybe I want to draw those parallels a little less now. <laughs> All right. So now how do we talk about fulfillment? Well, okay. So first, when we think about how this book is actually fulfilled, we have to say, first and foremost, it was fulfilled in the near future for Habakkuk. And it was uh, in the near future. Not only did Babylon come in and take Israel off into captivity, but then in 538, 67 years later, Babylon would be overthrown by an invading Persian army and the Jews would be released. And it's quite fascinating how they did it, how the Persians did it. They blocked off the river because they couldn't get across the river, so they blocked off the river, they split it into seven tongues, and then they just walked across. And they marched right into Babylonian territory and they kicked their rear ends. I mean, just annihilated them to the shock of the entire world. Right? And so everybody's going, What? Babylon's fallen? And on top of that, when Cyrus, who's leading the Persian army, comes in and defeats them, he just goes, see you, Jews. Y'all can go back home. What? Nobody does that. Who does that? A king who came in under God's direction after God had said, you're going to be there about 70 years. And about 70 years, Cyrus was like, I have an idea. I'm going to release the Jews. Do you have an idea? I bet you have an idea. All right. It's amazing how God works those things out. All right. Now, so that's 
right immediately, right? That's how that applies. Okay, immediately these things were fulfilled within whatever, not maybe 80 years of Habakkuk, probably. Uh, all of this came to fruition. But we can't just leave it there. It gets fulfillment. But here's the problem. If you just take a passage right out of Habakkuk and you jump straight to me, and you don't ask, what is he saying? Who's he saying it to? When did this apply? All those kinds of things. Here's what you get. This is from our beloved friend. All right. I want to I read this. Just let's read this. And you think what we just read, let's see if this lines up with the book of Habakkuk. Uh, in the Old Testament, the Israelites had several different national feasts, such as Passover, that they were to observe and set times each year. The times had been ordained by God and couldn't be changed. These were special times that God had already established to show his people favor. Just as it was with them, there are appointed times God has already ordained to show his favor in your life. After years of things being routine, you'll come into set times of growth and increase. God will thrust you from the background to the foreground, accelerate your dreams, Make, your, make things happen faster than you thought. Problems will unexpectedly turn around, e even though it looks impossible. You need to get ready. I believe you've come into one of your set times of favor. The creator of the universe is breathing on your life in a new way. His power of favor is greater than any force that's trying to come, upon, come against you. Your appointed time is established. Now, what verse is he commenting on? He's commenting on Habakkuk 2, 3. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. What was that written about? That was God saying that about the Babylonians. What he forgot to read and comment on was the Lord in verse 2 saying, The Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he who reads it may run. But you take that verse, rip it kicking and screaming out of context, apply it straight to me, and you will read that verse the exact same way he did. That's all he did. Was he said, well, what does that mean? Well, okay, well, he says there's an appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. God has good things in store for you in your life. That's what that means. Yeah. If you notice in the prosperity gospel theology, the preachers are the only ones that ever get rich. They're the only ones that ever get rich. I mean, they must have some great faith. I don't know. If that's what they're saying, they must be naming and claiming a lot. But it seems like their congregants are the ones that are always naming and claiming everything. Yeah. Yeah, so you die of cancer, and you're like, well, I, I thought that the good things were coming my way. He's breathing on you, new life, and all this kind of stuff. It's not live in a world where people actually die, where kids are abused. I mean, what, what world are we living in here that this actually even works? The only reason it works is because he went back into Habakkuk, a book you may have never read, 
took a verse you may have never heard of before, took it out of context you didn't know, and applied it to a life you don't have and will never have. But because it came from the Bible, you believe it. But it doesn't come from the Bible. Because a verse taken out of context is not biblical. If we're going to be biblical, then we've got to understand the context. And you've got to understand who's being talked to and how we understand it. Okay, enough bashing. I'm going to get more in Joel Osteen, just wait. Uh, and others like him, he's not the only one, but he publishes so much online. So all you have to do is say, Joel Osteen Habakkuk, and there it is. Um, <laughs> so he's easy to pick on. Um, but what instead we get here is how the New Testament authors take Habakkuk and apply it to you. All right? Here's how they're applying it to you. Listen to what Paul says. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. For in the righteousness of, uh, of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Pay attention. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Okay, how do the righteous live? By faith. The unrighteous are guilty, and they're going to be absorbed in his wrath. But here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, everyone's guilty. Everyone's guilty. Even you, you're guilty. But the righteous, the ones who are not swept up in his wrath, live by faith in God alone. Tell me, in Habakkuk, what is he scared about? The iniquity in Judah. The iniquity in, uh, in the Babylonians. He's scared about all the lawlessness around him. Paul is saying, yeah, the same today. Except you're in the horde that's unrighteous. If you want to be righteous, you must live by faith. What does Habakkuk get to in the end? I'm going to trust that the Lord will save me. That's it. That's Paul's point. You're all guilty. We're all guilty. The righteous live by faith. And what do they live by faith in? Jesus Christ. That's what he's going to get to in Romans. Live by faith in Jesus Christ. Look at what he says in Galatians. Paul again. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. Pulls that right out of Habakkuk. And he says the problem in Habakkuk, obviously, is the wickedness, of which we're all a part if we try to live by the law, because no one can be justified that way. The righteous can only trust in God for their salvation. Is he applying it right? That's no Joel Osteen right there. All right? So for the Christian... Habakkuk, Habakkuk's prophecy is crucial, is a crucial reminder that the judgment of God is fierce and no one is immune from prosecution. Therefore, the gospel message is that the righteous shall live by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the ultimate picture of both God's mercy and wrath. So it's helpful, if you can, in reading, to figure out, is there any part of this book that's quoted in the New Testament? And how do the New Testament writers apply it? Now, you're not always going to find that, but a lot of times you will. And you'll see how they apply it. The righteous shall live by faith. What's the message out of Habakkuk to me? 
Live by faith. Trust in God for salvation. But it doesn't stop there. No, no. We can actually look to the future also. Look at how Hebrews 10, 35 applies it. 35 and follow. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence. By the way, the Hebrews, are the people that are receiving the letter in Hebrews, they're thinking about running back to Judaism because Christianity is facing a lot of persecution. And I didn't sign up for this. Okay, that's kind of the thought. And the author of Hebrews is saying, you can't do that. Like, it, just trust me, it'll be okay, just stay. So, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. Oh, that, that word delay is, we crossed that in, in, uh, in Habakkuk. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and persevere their souls. What is the author of Hebrews saying? God is coming, and he's coming in judgment. You're afraid of the persecutor? You're afraid of the coming horde from Babylon, that unrighteous lot that's coming to persecute you? Remain. The righteous live by faith. That's what God tells Habakkuk when he's scared about the invading Babylonian armies. You're scared about the ones that invade, just remember to persevere. Listen to what Revelation 18, 18 says with John. He says, and cried out, uh, uh, what city was like this great city? By the way, this is the destruction of Babylon in Revelation. Tell me John's, wh- what, where John's mind's at, probably on a lot of different places. And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned. This is Babylon, Babylon crying as they die. Uh, crying out, alas, for the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. This is, this is similar themes that are going throughout Habakkuk. For in a single hour she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets. For God has given judgment for you and against her. You're taking up the taunt that Habakkuk said you were going to take up, right? When the, the Jews were going to take up when Babylon died. Okay, now you're the one taking up the taunt against the wicked city of the world called Babylon. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and be found no more. Therefore, we must endure whatever cultural force comes against us, thrusting, or trusting that God's judgment will surely come for his saints and against the wicked. So we're drawing cultural parallels now. You're looking around the world that is on fire in political turmoil, in turmoil of every kind. Our nation can't figure out who, what a boy and a girl is anymore. A Supreme Court justice sat down and was asked what a woman is, and said she's not a biologist, for crying out loud. We can't define boy and girl. We can't figure out what decent policy even looks like. I ain't even talking about policy that favors Christians. or I'm not even talking about that. I'm just talking about common sense, right? Just who can use what bathroom and things like that. Just things that make sense. We can't even do that. We've lost our minds. 
We can't tell what the truth is. Doesn't seem like anybody's actually saying what is true, and they're all shading it toward their own thing, and most of it is, seems to be lies, you find out later on. What do you do? You endure whatever cultural force comes against us. And you expect that we'll see judgment. But you know what? As Paul points out, there but for the grace of God go I. I'd be caught right up in the same thing if God had not given me Christ. If he had not opened my eyes to salvation. So in that burning anger that you might have for the culture, and I get it, there probably should also be underneath some sense of compassion, too. Knowing that that's blindness in action. That's blindness in action. And Lord, would you please open their eyes? Right? If not, they're going to be swept up in judgment. And what am I left to do? Endure? Yes. Trust. Because the righteous live by faith. So we trust in that judgment. We will only be saved. Only be saved by faith in the one who shed his blood for us. That's it. So this, the whole Old Testament is not designed to go straight from the context of the Old Testament straight to me. It's designed to go from the context of the Old Testament straight to Jesus. And then I'm supposed to go to Jesus, right? My eyes go to the cross. And there I find the fulfillment of Habakkuk, the fulfillment of Jeremiah, the fulfillment of Ezekiel. And in that way, it applies to me because this is about him. And he bought me. And I am part of his body. So it lifts our eyes to the cross rather than to our own navel. Any last questions very quickly? Sorry. All right. Well, let's end it there. Pick up next time. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for your word. We're grateful for any and every way that it, it, it brings our eyes to Jesus. I pray that you would help us I don't want to cast aspersions on people who misinterpret the Bible unnecessarily. I'm not trying to judge their heart. But I pray that it would be used as a, as a way of, of warning to us that we can be caught up in the same error, that we can be caught up in the same misinterpretation and may have been. And I pray that you would help us to avoid that and instead draw our eyes to Jesus and there find comfort and hope and direction for our lives in the here and now. I pray that you would do that through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.